0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, October 6th, 2021. I'm John Podhoretz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. On am November 22nd in New York City, live and in person at a beautiful hotel. We are going to have our annual roast, our 11th annual roast. Uh, people who are listening, some people have been to the roast. If you haven't been to the roast, it is our, it is the, Yeah. Commentary is a nonprofit, 501c3. This is one of the chief ways we raise money to keep continue our operations going and strong and bring you this podcast every day, among other things. Um, And it's a very unusual event in the world of these sorts of events. It's funny. It's lively. It's off the record. It's uh, jazzy and uh, and uh, full of surprises. Um, uh, A high good time is had by all. And uh this year's roasty following in the footsteps of Norman podhoritz Dick Cheney, Charles Krauthammer, Jonah Goldberg, Dan Senor, uh, Joe Lieberman, a um, bunch of other people whose names I can't remember right off the top of my head is Rabbi Mayor Sully Soloveitchik, our Jewish commentary columnist the uh, whose pulpit is the oldest. Uh, synagogue in the United States, the uh, smash and Portuguese synagogue in New York, a professor uh, at Yeshiva University, a Princeton Ph.D., uh, 43 years old, knows more, uh, has forgotten more about everything than you've possibly learned, is funny, is lively, and we will enjoy taking him down a couple of pegs because that's what we do if you're interested in coming to the roast it's not a cheap ticket. It's an expensive ticket, and it's an expensive table, but it is worth it, and it's worth it to support the cause of commentary and to have uh, an occasion on which we can all get into a room together and enjoy our uh, each other's company for the first time in a couple of years since we had to postpone last year for obvious reasons. So go to, uh, you can email uh, roast at commentary.org or go to commentary.org slash roast 21 for details and information. If you email us at roast uh, at commentary.org, um, we will send you all that information by email. Uh, and please join us November 22nd. You will not be sorry. You will be so happy. I swear to God. And I couldn't swear to God in Sully Solovich's presence if i weren't being completely honest with me as always executive editor abe greenwald hi abe hi john senior writer christine rosen hi christine hi john and associate editor noah rothman hi john okay so we have a we have an issue palooza here uh, to go along with the palooza that might uh, be uh happening in the senate once uh once the uh, Democrats realize that they probably have to do the debt ceiling on their own, we can talk about that a little bit. We can talk about the debt ceiling. We can talk about the war on Facebook. We can talk about Taiwan. These are the three things we're talking about, talking about. So um, I'm just going to ask Christine, which, which one should we start with?
1: Well, you know, my preference, I'd start with Facebook. Plus before we started taping, you and Noah had a good argument going, so I'd like to hear it continue on the air.
0: (laughs) Okay. But, Christine Rosen you have actually written extensively about Facebook in our pages you actually had a cover piece in commentary two years ago uh, advocating for the breakup uh, or the eventual breakup let's say of, of Facebook um, uh, as a as a monopoly um, if you've been following the dis- the discussions of whistleblower um, uh, woman who came out on on 60 minutes on sunday and then was uh, conveniently amazingly right before the uh right before congress on monday um she comes at the facebook is evil and must be dealt with perspective uh in it at a different angle from yours let's say
1: yes d- an angle that i don't actually support although uh, the research and and information that she cites in terms of it. The social effects of facebook particularly on kids are accurate but the solution that she's urging uh congress in particular to embrace which is creating more bureaucracy to uh, monitor content in a way that really gets my knee-jerk first amendment uh uh hackles raised, I don't think would be effective because ultimately it doesn't tackle the problem of Facebook, which is its size and its scale. Um, And when it went down the other day, a lot of people experienced that because when we we say Facebook, but Facebook is an umbrella organization that includes many other properties, including, uh, and most importantly, Instagram and WhatsApp. They also are quite adventurous about, you know, they have companies that are doing augmented reality, artificial intelligence style stuff. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg's dream and vision for Facebook is Facebook is only one is becoming an ever shrinking component of that, both in terms of uh, new users, but also in terms of where he sees the company going. I mean, he remember uh, not long ago he was he was talking about creating his own currency, global currency. They function in many ways, not really like an NGO, but like a nation state at this point, given their scale and size. They have an oversight board that they internally refer to as like a Supreme Court of Facebook. It's big. It's much bigger than than just Facebook. So, I, but I do worry about someone who is sitting in front of Congress talking about how algorithms need to be monitored by uh, Congress when Congressman, like um, Senator Blumenthal, thinks that Finsta is is its own application <laughs> rather than a shorthand slang for fake Instagram, which is something all the kids these days have to avoid their parents monitoring their Instagram accounts. So the. Congress is so far behind, and we've talked about this before, and this has been the case for a while. They're so technologically and I think philosophically incapable of doing what she's urging them to do right now, that it would become kind of a mess if they tried. The bigger issue is the antitrust issue.
0: Facebook um, is the dominant player in the world of social media, by a margin so vast that it's 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 really unclear that any any anything outside of its ambit, with the exception of Snapchat and TikTok, have any purchase uh, whatsoever. Um, and there's an oddity in the way everybody is talking about this, which is that uh, H- Hagen, I believe, is how you pronounce it. Her name, uh, the whistleblower. Um, she says facebook puts people over puts profits over people and zuckerberg says we don't put profits over people so right there that's a lie of course they put profits over people they're a publicly traded company their fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders is to maximize profit that is what they do the question is whether the ways in which they maximize profit based on their responsibility to their shareholders a violates antitrust rules or and B in a larger social moral sense, is destructive of our national social fabric. These are two different questions, obviously, although one informs the other because if you if your purpose is to maximize profits and the way you maximize profits is to destroy the social fabric of the country, and to uh create this uh world of addiction of a, of a of a kind of addiction that we have never really seen before uh you you find you are in a, it's an interesting sort of concatenation of circumstances
1: well and can i just add that in terms of uh, competitors there have been some interesting shifts just recently there there was a interesting op-ed by the guy who founded MeWe, which is an alternative social networking site, who a few years ago argued in the page of the Wall Street Journal that Facebook wasn't a monopoly because the existence of his company and its flourishing suggested that there was still room for competitors in that market. He wrote an op-ed about a week ago saying, actually, I've changed my mind and here's why. And he lays out the case, which is kind of compelling. And it's an interesting example of how just because someone can enter this social media market doesn't mean that they aren't still Absolutely uh, able to be crushed by the size and scale and, and ability of regulatory capture for Facebook to function and crush, eventually crush its its uh, com- competition.
2: Well, let's let's talk about that angle <clears throat> for a minute. And I'll bring a bit of a libertarian flair to this uh, to this conversation. You know, all of us seem to believe that Facebook is this indomitable behemoth, but Facebook doesn't. Facebook's internal dialogue suggests that they believe they're a dying star, sloughing off the most lucrative. Uh, demos that you can attract young consumers. Their, their primary user base is now older and unattractive to advertisers. And this company functions primarily on an advertising model, um, which is perhaps why they've become one of the chief proponents of regulating themselves. They are advocating for reforms to Section 230 in part because it would create a regulatory framework that would presumably hire Facebook employees, past and future, but also because it would crowd out competitors. And there are competitors. Um, it is not a monopoly such that it can't allow other, uh, uh, other social media networks in the space. And particularly, I'm thinking about Snapchat, which is a direct competitor to Instagram, one of its least, most lucrative um, arms of this, of this company as Facebook begins to lose popularity, lose influence. Their raw numbers suggest that they're, um, you know, um, prohibitive. That they're the market leader, um, but in in the sense that this is like Elias Kennedy's law of crowds. Once it stops growing, it collapses, uh, and that seems to be the op- their operating theory. It's not the operating theory of anybody outside the company, but I think they're telling us something that we should be listening to. Okay, but Snapchat I, I wanna... has
1: only has a little under three hundred million users. Instagram, just Instagram, has a billion active users. So their scale is still I mean they agree they they are pushing at Facebook and Facebook often adopts some of Snapchat's more popular features and absorbs them into into Instagram and its and its apps but they are still the scale is quite there's still quite a bit of difference in terms of how much how many users uh, Facebook has in, or Instagram and Instagram versus Snapchat. I, I just
2: to you know make it plain I hate Facebook I'm not on Facebook. I don't think you should be on Facebook. Just like I don't think you should be com- using combustible tobacco products or drinking excess or if you're a- exercising. It's the sort of thing that can kill Thank you. you. Agreed. <laughs> so um, don't do it. No, this but- is... But that, but that is a personal choice and a personal determination, and for a government to begin to break up this monopoly, a presumed monopoly based on social value alone, not mark anti competitive market practices, is not how we do things in this country,
3: yeah, I, on that point, you know, I was going to jump in earlier that what's interesting to me about the discussion of the harms that Facebook does is that we're we're it's we're already we've already taken personal responsibility out of the discussion itself, right? Um, So in that sense, it reminds me a little bit of the sort of uh, anti-McDonald's, you know, campaign from years back, Morgan Spurlock, or, you know, uh, the sort of, uh, you know, uh, anti-junk food or um, processed foods uh, kind of campaign. Like, you know, when we start talking about the addictive nature of things that uh, aren't chemicals, um, I, I it, it to me it gets a little a little dicey.
0: Okay, here's the problem. Uh, the problem is that Facebook and social media are addictive. They, there are there is there are relevant data that show that social media has an effect on the on the body's dopamine system. It's a complicated effect. And you know, for all we know, where 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 I might agree with you is that sometimes that these kinds of claims end up being like phrenology. They're 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 untestable because there's no baseline before there was social media to re- register how people dealt with dopamine surges or whether ordinary life created the same kind of dopamine surges that we see here. Um, but you know, you really all evidence suggests that people or I did that was my experience with Twitter I have to say and uh it was stopping Twitter was in fact a form of breaking an addiction it wasn't quite as hard as quitting cigarettes which I which I did um and uh but and it, it afforded me more immediate relief by, by the way because those the, the those weird dopamine surges which people which people I think the best comparison to is the slot machine. That um, it, you know, slot machines are set have have some kind of a setting we don't really understand. Where you feed a slot machine quarters and quarters and quarters and quarters, and then in some incredibly irregular pattern, you hit it. You know, you get you get something back, and and it's the irregularity that creates the dopamine surge, and you don't know when it's going to come, and so you crave it. But you also, you know, have the experience of 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 a kind of uh, instability that then uh, achieves some kind of semi orgasmic release once the thing hits, and so it has this terrible feedback loop.
3: I, I don't I don't doubt it at all. But the truth is, there are so many technologies that are addictive now um, that you know, John. As you say, you you stopped Twitter. You know, you quit, and you and you quit.
0: Right. But I'm, but I'm, but I was, I was, you know, I was 57 years old when I stopped Twitter. I wasn't 12. Mm -hmm. I wasn't 14. Um, you know, I see how my kids interact with social media and I, 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 I can see and we control it and try to contain it, but you can see the effect that it has. And, um, not just Facebook, social media, TikTok, which is probably the more relevant example now for, for say teenagers. Um, TikTok is, um, is, is, is quite anodyne in m- much of its, it's sort of jokes. It's like a kind of visual jokey frame or dances or things like that. It's not serious. It's not, you know, but um, apparently, areas. Oh, I, I, I disagree areas... with that.
2: I, I know a lot of people who get their news from TikTok now.
0: Okay, but there are areas Spiritual in stuff. which people, in which people, sort of like there are, you know, show you how to be an anorexic or how to be bulimic and stuff like that. Like bad, bad, bad areas uh, that you can find in places like this for for teenagers, and that's the difference here. The difference is, and that's where. Uh, the 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 whistleblower was focusing their att- for her attention and where all of this really goes, which is personal responsibility is all well and good when you're dealing with adults who have agency. Where these things start to break down and where, for example, the argument against the tobacco companies started breaking down was whether they were marketing to kids. And that was what she showed in the release of all those documents was this focus on the part of facebook marketing executives on how can they how how can they increase the time spent on facebook by people which is the secret to their you know success and their idea was we need to get kids hooked early and feed them the things that will keep them entertained and on our site for longer and longer and the question then is is that a legitimate business pursuit Facebook nominally does not allow kids under the age of thirteen onto Facebook or Instagram, or
1: but they whatever. do allow them on Messenger. They have they own Messenger, and Messenger Kids is a thing, and and serves I think kids as young as six years old.
0: Right. So 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 this is very complicated because like Facebook also. Anyway, the the complicated part here is w- what Noah gets at, which is that um, the. The company that can deal with an over-regulatory framework that is set up by Congress or by the executive branch or by Congress and new laws with the executive branch that can survive it and thrive under a, under a hyper-regulatory framework is Facebook. And why? Not because it's losing market share, not because it's, you know, it's in twilight or anything like that, but because I'm looking at the numbers. Uh, as we speak, or I was, I may have just deleted, uh, stupidly uh, closed the window. But, you know, Facebook is up 56% year over year from from last year's numbers. It may, it, you know, it grosses several hundred billion dollars a year. I mean, you know, this is no joke. Where are the numbers here? Okay, so the June 2021 numbers, revenue for the quarter ending June 2021 was twenty nine billion dollars year to year up fifty five percent. Net income, almost eleven billion dollars. That was up hundred percent. Okay, so net income by quarter. This is a company that can that will will be able to claim worldwide a profit of close to forty five billion dollars. That's astounding. You know, it is not at any risk of disappearing because there is an Atari coming up on it's back except for a company that is basically owned by the Chinese com- by the Chinese army which is TikTok which is a which is a Chinese company.
1: There but there there's another thing going on here particularly with how Congress is handling this and handling the whistleblower who's who's herself being handled by a kind of well-known democratic operative lawyer and that's the issue of content because what is really angering certainly a lot of democrats right now is that Facebook allows for content, you know, I remember there was a whole spate of articles about uh, one of our previous roastees, Ben Shapiro being always having the number one art shared articles on Facebook and this drove the left absolutely barking mad. They're like this is terrible. They, sh- they should be sharing New York Review of Books essays. How dare the people actually enjoy, you know, a Daily Wire story from from Ben Shapiro. So there's a there's there is kind of a political stealth battle happening here that's highly partisan that has to do with content and Facebook has a massive amount of power when it comes to content moderation. And they also have a lot of money to throw at content providers. So a danger down the line is that if you don't have a legitimate competitor to Facebook, you also don't have a company. You have you have news organizations beholden to Facebook to share their material. And those relationships start to become compromised when one is a behemoth with billions to spend and the other is a startup with very little. So, so there's a content and information issue here as well and the partisan overtones of that as we saw during the last election include questions about can facebook suppress certain stories will it um are they being encouraged to or is there a little wink and a nod going on here in terms of that so those are also concerns that i think americans should have when they look at the size and scale and power of facebook
0: but no where you're and i think christine gets it your libertarian fears and they're 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 really justified which is this idea that Facebook changed its algorithm so that um, people could more could get more content from the people they knew best, or the friends or whatever that they mo- that they interacted with most. This apparently has had the net result of increasing the ideological bubbles in in the country that people who have lots of you know conservatives with lots of friends, their friends are all conservatives or Republicans, and so as they're sharing Republican conservative content, and as Republican conservative content during the Trump era gets more and more nutsy in, in, in certain categories, there's more sharing of nutsiness, and that stuff then comes to seem more credible because it's being shared by people other people trust, and that's probably true vice versa. Um, and so you have, this, you have this phenomenon of the bubble increasing, but that was not Facebook's intent, which is where what Facebook's intent was to increase people's engagement with the site. It isn't to encourage conservatism, or it isn't to encourage this or encourage that. All they want is for people to spend a lot of time on the site. And this is where we get into moving off just the simple question of uh, antitrust into the larger question of what are we doing to ourselves? What is happening here? You know, this is a version of Neil Postman's you know, book from the 90s, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which was about television, we are literally amusing ourselves to death. I mean, we are, we are, we have, uh, we have, we don't know. There's no way of proving that the co- that there's correlation and causation in this idea that there's an increase in sort of depression, anxiety, self particularly among teenage girls as a result of social media. We don't know that we don't all we know is that there this increase seems to kind of coincide with the introduction of social media into the lives of people and that these numbers the reporting numbers on anxiety and depression and all that have gone way up in tandem with that and that could be just a total happenstance and that this is all crap having well, said that you can understand that a country in which you know, seventy-five percent of kids are spending hours a day on social media. Is a con- and 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 ingesting all sorts of things could be a country that is in is in a moral crisis.
3: Abe, uh, I mean, I think it's darker than that in a sense because if if we were amusing ourselves to death, that that's one thing. We're sort of irritating ourselves to death, right? Because in the case of adults, it's 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 the addiction has to do with um, heightening our political anxieties, right? And if we're talking about the effect on uh, kids and teenage girls, that's that's all about feeding into um, their uh, personal insecurities. So the actual nature of the addiction itself is 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 so very dark. You know, it's 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 not even a sort of uh, kind of hedonistic uh, indulgence in things. It's it's uh, it's more neurotic.
2: Yeah, I don't think we're that far off from establishing to a degree that satisfies lawmakers the extent to which the psychological harm caused by social media outlets uh, can be roughly equivalent to demonstrable physical harm like the sort caused by uh, tobacco products. Um, And we regulate gambling. To a similar degree even though it's just a psychological addiction with deleterious effects mentally as opposed to physically Uh, i think we'll probably get there sooner rather than later whether i like that or not um but nevertheless you know we are talking about a, a legal product that has harmful effects when taken in large doses and we have a lot of those we have a ton of those and it's incumbent on you the individual and you as a parent in particular to regulate Um, your children's access to these sort of things and the state to a certain degree, but the state can't regulate access to tobacco products. We don't allow people under 18 to have tobacco products, but they get them anyway. We don't allow kids to drink alcohol, but they get them anyway, or have lottery tickets, but they get them anyway. They will have access to these sort of things, whether we like it or not. We can engage in a regulatory regime that alters the framework around which businesses operate in this country in order to chase a moral panic around these uh, these institutions, and I'm I share that panic. I'm sympathetic to that idea. I also don't believe that we should alter the social contract in the pursuit of a of a hypothetical social good um, that may not even materialize. I mean,
0: look we have, we have, we have this wildly contradictory understanding of what we're supposed to be doing with um, social media, our phones, our computers, and all of that. I mean, on the one hand, we understand that there's something very destructive going on, and on the other hand. What is one of the core issues of the Democratic Party in 2021? Internet access. Everybody needs internet. We need everybody to have broadband speeds up to the same level that people have them in big city, you know, in, in expensive, fancy neighborhoods. Schools must be wired. There must be computers on every desk and all of that. These are mixed messages. We are we are, on the one hand, talking about the dangers of spending your life fixated on a on a on a screen and on the other hand we we have a public discourse that is dominated by people who believe that getting screens in front of every single person in the country is the only way that we can achieve parity equity and a truly just society whereas in fact it may be better for kids who never see a screen they might be they they, they might have a competitive advantage uh when they get out of college or something like you know when they get out of high school because they'll never because they won't have had this affliction cast upon
2: them i think that's totally true and if we're all capitalists in this room then we can count on that competitive advantage to emerge as a uh i think the competing theory of maturation that will win out eventually
0: except for this which is you know uh, Christine and I have kids around the same age, so um, they make it as hard as possible for you as a parent to monitor, control, and contain the use of these devices. It is, it is the entire society is now structured, for example, like this, which is your kid has to have a phone, because not only because every other kid has a phone or whatever, but because uh, there's no longer a kind of, web of social interest that says kids are all going to hang out together somewhere and then parents are going to come drive up and pick them up and take them home and they'll be all hanging out together because one kid has a phone, calls his parent, the parent comes and picks them up. What if your kid doesn't have a phone? How are they going to call you to tell you where they are? Whereas, you know, in a world before phones, there were all kinds of ways in which people, created the conditions under which they met each other they got together they did you know all of that
1: but it's worse than that I'm sorry to interrupt but you know I just the other day one of my kids talked back to me I know shocking right a teenager and so when he does that he loses his phone for a little while because that's the thing he likes to have with him the most but the school requires logins to certain apps and certain classes that he only has on his phone so if I take his phone, I am compromising his ability to do his schoolwork in school. Now he loses it when – so he goes to school This phone. He loses it when he comes home. But the point is that it's baked into their – into the educational system, not just the social system, but baked into the educational system for kids these days is, is – it, it, they're tethered to these electronics to do their work.
0: Yeah. It's – and, you know, and homework is now all on – is now all distributed by compute. All of this, which you can understand – it is all, though, creating the conditions under which the idea that a parent has 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 the ability or the you know or or to control and contain the use of devices on which social media are placed is very very limited, and that is by design. Facebook says you can't be on Facebook until you are thirteen. Well, that's fantastic. So one of my kids is a rower, right, was uh, uh, on crew. Her team has a Facebook page where they say whether, you know, because it's raining, they're not going to go out on the river that morning. I had to let her join Facebook, which she was not on, in order for her to get, be on the Facebook page. That Facebook encourages that. Facebook has created the world in which, those messages that information is centralized in its in its place. and so you are you are at a very grave disadvantage as a parent who wants to say you can only use your phone half an hour a day or something like that. Well what does that mean? Does that mean that they can not carry it with them if you need to if you're dropping them off at a mall and you want to pick them up at the at the you know an hour later it, it it's impo- it, it's a weird very difficult thing. And, and that is why, that is why it is so profitable. It's so profitable because we're out of control of it.
3: I'm I'm, I'm the only one of the four here who doesn't have kids, but I still, maybe it's, this is why I feel compelled to point out this kind of irony. Um, So the, so we're talking about this totally new kind of harm um, to kids and it's a huge problem. And it strikes me that it's so interesting because so many of the other potential risks to kids when we were growing up have been eliminated, right? Like this comes at a time when you've now sort of almost eradicated so many dangers of like, you know, no one's allowed out alone. You can't, there's the playgrounds are like soft, you know, so you can't get hurt. You know, there's like all this stuff. And then, but now there comes in, it's like, it's, it doesn't matter. I mean, it matters, but it does because you, now that you have this other huge problem, you know, that swoops in. That that you're like, well, I can't control it. The government, someone's got to do something. This is, you know, this is this is worse. Right.
1: Well, but- and that's that's a really it's an important point because the other thing that this the technology and and all of these apps and social media platforms do is they are in your private home in a right. way that those other risks and dangers of childhood. I mean, it used to be. I mean, I bicycled around till all out till it got dark with no helmet and played in construction sites. Like that's what you did when you're <laughs> young and in Florida in your neighborhood. But those risks would end at your front door. This risk is is inside and it's constant. And
0: I want to point out that Democrats in Congress who are the ones who are pushing this, Blumenthal and others, they don't care about teenagers. That's that's all not they have this narrative that the 2016 election was stolen through Facebook and that Trump is organizing and the Republicans are organizing the attack on our democratic institutions in 2024 through facebook and that somehow conservatives are getting privileged by facebook because of this algorithmic sharing of close information and they must be controlled and they must be stopped and it's nonsense cambridge analytica did nothing it was not a successful operation the russians did not control facebook the russians did not get trump elected and 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 they are still they are still clinging to this preposterous narrative according to which A world in which Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire gets a lot of shares is a world that must somehow be controlled by a Department of Algorithms at the Federal Communications Commission. And that is horrifying. But Facebook is also horrifying. That's the it's it's the problem of like some of the tobacco regimes and regimens that were put in place, I think, were arguably, you know, incredibly destructive of, of personal freedoms but it's you know, hard to make an argument for a tobacco company. You know what it's not hard to make an argument for? Subscribing to David Bonson's newsletters, the DCToday.com and DividendCafe.com, those newsletters, which uh, if you're following it, will also help you understand what might happen regula- in, in regulatory framework terms to uh, Facebook, which of course is one of the great stock stories of our time and great investment stories of our time. Um, having gone you know from non-existent to 356 dollars a share just in 15 or not even 15 years i think it's like like 10 years or 12 years or something since it went public um, uh, that's what you get from the dc today.com and uh, uh, interesting and compl- complex examinations of what happened uh, that day david who is uh, very interested in questions of inflation and the supply chain. For example, in today's, in the newsletter that he released last night, uh, makes the point that um, maybe one of the reasons that we're seeing uh, inflation is that the uh, shipping, uh, you know, the the, the shipping business um, cut back too fast because it believed too much that, you know, we were in a we are going to be in perpetual darkness and in perpetual, you know, financial straits and didn't didn't uh didn't aggregate, you know, didn't adequately scale up as things were getting better and so there's a delay and this explains some of the inflationary spiral that's going on. That's one of the kinds of uh insights you can find if you subscribe to the dc or to dividendcafe.com. Go to dividendcafe.com to subscribe that's the easiest way to do it. Uh, and, and get these insights from the Bonson group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Okay. Uh, so, uh, the debt ceiling limit, uh, needs to be raised at some point before the end of the month, supposedly. And, uh, The gavotte is this: It's incredibly irresponsible for Republicans not to raise, not to be participants in raising the debt limit. How dare they? The debt limit, raising the debt limit, is just a way of paying for bills that have already been incurred that Republicans were involved in incurring. And so, this is just incredibly and horribly and wildly irresponsible. And then Mitch McConnell says to Chuck Schumer, who says this, "You know perfectly well you can raise the debt limit tomorrow in two seconds. All you have to do." is do it through the budget reconciliation process, according to which you only need 51 votes. And you have those 51 votes. You have 50 Democratic senators and Kamala Harris, and you can do it that way because, of course, the budget is... This is literally what budget reconciliation for. This is a budget bill. This is, the, this is money that involves the federal budget and making sure the federal budget's bills are paid so just do that. Why don't you just do that? We just don't want to be involved. Our hands are clean. And you know what? In two thousand six, all of you, including Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden, voted against raising the debt limit. So don't don't come go don't come crawling to me with your oh it's so cravenly or oh and Barack Obama by the way oh it's so cravenly irresponsible. How dare you not raise the debt limit when you yourself fifteen years ago voted not to raise the debt limit? So where are we?
2: Democrats have painted themselves into a a a corner and they're starting to behave like cornered animals in a very scary way. And it's starting to actually unnerve me. Um, They have now three options as I see it. Default. That's one option. It's uh, the worst possible option, but it's on the table. Um, The second is to pass a reconciliation bill, um, alter the rules to allow it to, uh, to raise the debt limit. And pass a budget and a simple budget like a CR or something, something much more scaled down because the alternative would be to renegotiate sort of this mansion cinema favorable giant spending bill that the moderates can accept. And that will take a long time, way past the point at which the, the government runs out of money. So that's not an acceptable option either from the Democratic point of view. And the third, which they're now toying with, is to break the filibuster. Joe Biden pledged over the course of 2020 that he would not support uh, ending or amending the legislative filibuster. And he is now flirting with this idea that they're going to have to create some rules so that the legislative filibuster can be dispensed with, but only for this debt ceiling idea, which is nonsense. Once you once you break that glass, it can't be unbroken. Um, And I don't I don't see any other way out of it for them. And they don't seem to see any other way out of it. And they have this gun to Republicans' heads because, you know, they're saying, "Oh, well, we can't, we don't want to do a reconciliation bill because we have our, you know, our giant spending bill that we want. So you have to help us do this. And Republicans are saying, we're not going to help you do this, obviously. Why would they? Uh, so they're, they're really in a trap of their own making. And I, I'm not sure how they resolve it. And it's getting late. Well, it
0: is, is, um, is uh, killing the filibuster a trap for them? A lot of them want to kill the Well, bilibuster. it is
2: insofar as you the same uh, members, including the president, who is who has said time and time again that he didn't want to do that and wouldn't support that. Uh, and the same members who are opposed to, you know, behemoth planetoid sized spending bills are also opposed to breaking the filibuster.
0: Right. Well, Joe Manchin says we can do this without breaking the filibuster. We know how they can do it. It's very simple. They do it because they aren't going to get Republican votes. They do it by voting as a budget reconciliation matter. And supposedly they can only do that a couple of times in a year. And so they don't they want to you know, it's like they don't want to use their get out of jail free card. They want to keep it for later, you know, or, you know, and, and 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 they're annoyed. And and not just that, but because of the structure of how this works, don't ask me to explain it because it's so arcane, in order for this to become, the raising the debt ceiling, become a reconciliation bill, uh, there will have to be a loosening up of things such that there is something called a voterama, which is a moment in in the, in Senate time in which a whole bunch of bills can be introduced on the floor at the same moment that have to be voted on and so republicans as well as democrats can introduce bills onto the floor and they will introduce bills onto the floor that democrats will have to vote down so that they can run against them in 2022 having voted down various bills that 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 will be helpful that will be helpful to republicans i can't i don't know what they are the house
2: gets that as as well it's uh you can reconciliation allows you to, to submit any amendment you want and they all have to be voted on because all these right. reconciliation requires these all these bills to come out of individual committees right okay in order to get to the floor right um, now that they explained they did that this, i already did this forgot, process i already forgot they did this process said. in february yeah to pass covid uh relief $1. Yeah. $1. 1.9 trillion dollars worth of covid relief you only get two bites of the apple well except who says you
0: only get two bites of the apple
2: the parliamentarian. I know. Well, the par- apparently, yeah.
0: But the parliamentarian can yeah, be fired all and another powerful. parliamentarian can be rehired. True. I mean, if they really need to do it three times, they'll figure out a way to do it three times. Anyway, they don't want to vote a Palooza. Schumer doesn't want to vote a Palooza. That's why he doesn't want to have to use and he because that can be used as a, a political weapon. So all he's doing is he's standing there yelling and screaming about how irresponsible. The Republicans are being and, you know, here's the interesting thing, which is the Republicans are saying it. And then they're kind of they're, they're new apologists among the, you know, never Trump, you know, Democrats are saying it as well. And then, of course, the media are saying it. And I, I don't understand how that is going to move a single Republican one iota toward them. To say, how dare you? How dare you? How dare you? You are being so cravenly irresponsible. It's shocking. It's awful when they know that they can pass it at will they just have to go through this process how is that how is that going to get them anywhere closer to where they want to be i mean in the end they're going to vote to raise the debt limit and so that's the way it's going to be it, they will vote to raise the debt limit and and it's going to happen i don't they're not going to go into default so this happened in 2011 with Obama as well, and it happened in 2006 with Bush. Like that's that's what happens. They will vote and to just approaching,
2: just approaching in 2011. That that kind of standoff resulted in. I think it was Moody's downgrading our credit rating. Right, it was kind of a big deal.
0: Well, it was kind of a big deal, except it was also seen, I believe, at the time as a as a as a gambit to put pressure on Republicans.
2: But can we talk briefly? I just want to briefly introduce sort of a digression about how. Um, you know for all Republican and right- wing laments about how Democrats control all the levers of culture and command the narrative and can change the narrative at will in unfavorable f- terms. they have hit so many messaging walls around this infrastructure bill. human infrastructure, you know, we're supposed to redefine all, caregiving, social activity as infrastructure. That bit the dust. They tried to reframe the notion that th- after after months of searing the number $3.5 trillion into everybody's brain, they tried to call it a $0, $0 bill. That bit the dust. Now they are spent a week and a half trying to say that with total control of government, Republicans are going to be at fault for not raising the debt limit. They've just abandoned that now by trying to go after the filibuster. Uh, so they, they, yes, the media is on board with democratic objectives, but and they're advancing in a completely incompetent narrative that doesn't um, comport with anyone's objective assessment of reality. They're still subject to the laws of political physics here, which is a little heartening. Uh, not just the—it's
3: um, not just that they've they've advanced an unsuccessful narrative, but they're also—and we—and we see this in the example of the debt ceiling. Um, but there's been this like shocking display of bad negotiate trying to negotiate without leverage um right <laughs> you know yeah as if as if as if as if somehow that's not what the name of the game is you know
0: Look, it's a very weird thing. Like they're saying you 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 can't do this to Mitch McConnell and Mitch McConnell yeah. saying, yeah, yes, I can. I mean, right. Yes, I can. You're in charge. You have the House, the Senate and the and the and the presidency. And maybe you and your you know catamites in the media can somehow structure the argument that we're at fault if, if you get. Uh, everything you want, and then you don't raise the debt limit, and we go into default. But I don't think that's. And McConnell is saying, "Hey, our constituents aren't going to feel that way about us. We, we fifty Republican senators, so go blow." And number two, I don't think that argument is going to pass muster with the American people who aren't like partisan Democrats because you are the only game in town. All we can do is
1: stop things. We, you know, and we can't even stop
3: you. Here.
1: Well, and we we actually have some early signs that that's exactly what the American people are already saying. I mean, the, you know, Biden and the Democrats numbers on the economy are not great. And this is a party that's been like sending checks to people. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, there's new evidence from polls that people don't want those checks to remain to be permanent, which is something we've, we've talked about before. But, you know, the, it's not great. It's not great. And we, you know, we discussed how. Uh, there's a close race in Virginia for the governorship, which is which has really, really become a tight race, much to the surprise of a lot of Democrats. They're not seen as competent on some of the things that they were kind of a gimme, right? Like it, it that disorder, disarray, and as, as Abe said, their seeming unwillingness to understand what hostage taking when it comes to legislation should look like. They just look like they're incompetent to the American public. And at the same time, inflation is still a threat. Energy prices are on the rise. This is not a great time to be looking incompetent about when you're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars of spending.
0: That's a very good point. And you know what else is a good point? A good point is, as we were talking throughout much of this podcast about uh, problems, uh, you know, presented by the internet. One of those problems is how easy it is for your personal data to be harvested and kind of used to try to sell you things or to, or to expose your privacy or anything like that. And that is why I use express VPN. Cause it turns out that even in Google Chrome's incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked. Data brokers still get to buy and sell your data One of those data points is your IP address. They use your IP to identify you uniquely and your location, but with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN customers, which makes it harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use, no matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months for free. That's e-x-p-r-e-s-s-v-p-n.com slash commentary. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. So just just to put a button on the on this whole thing. Um the Democrats want to raise the debt ceiling, or they have to raise the debt ceiling. They want to get the they want to get the giant budget bill through, and they want theoretically, they want the hard infrastructure bill as well. If they can if they can manage to get all three, will this conversation that we're having be moot? In other words, they'll raise the debt ceiling. Then, then they'll get to some number that is acceptable on the budget reconciliation bill that Manchin and Cinema will not be able to say no to. And they will then pass the infrastructure bill so that by the end of 2021, they will have succeeded in getting hard infrastructure, soft infrastructure, the COVID relief bill, the debt ceiling raised, and all this questions about, how, uh, about their competency. Will they, will they go away?
2: Maybe. I mean, it's totally possible that that happens. It's inexplicable that they haven't passed infrastructure already. Um, and, I you know, I, it's sort of hard to imagine how you get to that that solution that squares all the circles uh, when it comes to the moderate's objections over numbers. Because, as I said yesterday, when it comes to cinema, I don't think she has a number. Um, but who knows? But Christine Rage is an interesting point because we had a couple of polls recently out of uh, the Virginia gubernatorial race that suggest not just close but dead heat territory with the men- momentum behind Youngkin, the Republican in the race. And, you know, I was talking about 2022. When 2022 hits, then it becomes all about the midterms. Everybody gets cold feet. And nobody wants to do anything. Um, 2022 could come as early as the first week of November. If if Youngkin wins, it's a political earthquake. It'll terrify Democrats in every vulnerable, every, every competitive district, every vulnerable Democrat will be frozen in place. And that's you know, the end of the legislative phase of this term for Congress and quite possibly pending the elections in 2022, the end of the legislative phase of Joe Biden's presidency.
0: So I, I, I'm given to understand if you look at like the 538 polling, uh, McAuliffe is still up a couple of points. So the interesting question that's raised is polling, polling inaccuracies. We have actually now seen in this year the very likely possibility that there is some polling inaccuracy that 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 uh, is biasing against Democrats. That is to say, clearly the polling in California on the recall until the last week or two was bad and gave a false picture. Uh, you know, uh, in the end, Newsom won by almost 20 points, won the recall by almost 20 points. There were polls that had him down or like up three or something like that, almost until like three weeks out of the election. And it's possible that something like this might be going on in Virginia, where in 2017, when Ralph Northam was running against, I can't even remember who he was running against, um the polling was closer uh, he won very handily but the polling was very tight and it's possible that yunkin is somehow overpolling or that or that the polling is not showing McAuliffe's strength certainly i will say i don't think McAuliffe is running that way i get 5 emails a day from his campaign in some fashion or other from weird surrogates by the way carol king I get an email every day now from Carol King, the author of, you know, uh, Tapestry, (laughs) the album Tapestry uh, from 50 years ago. And uh, there's an interesting wrinkle, which is apparently Glenn Youngkin in in his prior career played some role in the fact that Taylor Swift sold her. um, Taylor Swift, a guy named Scooter Braun bought Taylor Swift's recordings and taylor swift decided after selling them that she didn't want to sell them and that she was somehow mishandled it's a, it's, it, it's a ridiculous story but apparently now mcauliffe is leaning very heavily into the taylor swift vote saying that i mean weaponizing
1: t- taylor swift could be a sign of desperation in another context.
0: yeah now i love it's taylor swift but i i would just be interested to know who exactly is going to come out to vote um, you know, because poor Taylor Swift had her, had her albums, you know, she only got paid $300 million for all of her, for all of her masters or something. Don't ask me. It's all really <laughs> obscure, but, um, that is one thing to look at that, uh, that this, uh, Yunkin, uh, McAuliffe race may be not as close as it looks. It will be seismic if Yunkin wins. I mean, it will be. It will be, and and you know, it'll have all the seismic consequences that these things happen, which have, which is that people in swing districts all across the country will decide not to run again in twenty twenty two. There'll be ten Democrats will retire from the House who have bad polls that show them show them in trouble. Rather than like waste a year running and being tortured and tormented, they will try to line up their new investment, you know, banking jobs instead of instead of running and all that. So it is a it is a high stakes moment.
2: And progressives will convince themselves that the only reason why they're in trouble at all is because they haven't spent six trillion dollars.
0: There you go, and that that will raise new, interesting, new pressures on on the moderates who quit, which is to say, okay, you're not going to run again, or you're going to lose. So why don't you just why don't you vote with us, so you can be part of the vanguard that you know brought about this uh, you know wondrous new 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 regime, uh, uh, guys. Um, you know the ex-chair. You heard me talk about it. With that LMX massage and temperature regulation. Your chair can give you a massage. Your chair can heat you up or cool you down. Your chair, exclusively designed and made for X chair, the LMX massage and temperature regulation. The customized support uh, using patented dynamic variable lumbar DVL. Your back will never be happy in another chair again. Can your current officer do any of that? No, it can't. You know it can't. The X-Chair is high-performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. You can't wait to be at work. You can't wait to sit in the chair. You can't. sit down, get that thing going, and you're feeling great right at your desk. So take my advice. Try X-Chair for yourself, risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order X Chair has a 30 day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as thirty dollars a month. Xchaircommentary.com. dot com.
2: Can I introduce a, a topic that might be have a little bit more levity humor value yes, please. than the pending Great Power contest in the Taiwan Strait? Yes. Um just wanna introduce this just because I want to get your reaction, John. Um, for comedy's sake, New York City mayor Bill de Blasio is running for governor. He has surrounded himself with a team, three people uh, with direct knowledge of those conversations have told the New York Times that Bill de Blasio is going to seek the governorship of New York and Albany, and it's going to be hilarious.
0: I'm so happy. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that Bill de Blasio has decided to ritually humiliate himself yet again. It wasn't bad enough that he tried to run for president. Now he's going to run for, there are so many choices in, in, in the democratic. I mean, people outside people in New York city don't like him anymore. And nobody outside New York city likes him. And there are, there'll be three or four people in the race who will be contesting for this uh, governor nomination? There is the, the now sitting governor Kathy Hochul, the the lieutenant governor who was elevated to the to the governor's mansion with Andrew Cuomo's resignation. Uh, there is uh, Tish James, the attorney general, who is the person who sort of led the charge against Cuomo that got him ousted. Uh, there are a couple other people. Uh, all of them uh, are better situated to do better than de Blasio is having spent, uh, you know, eight years, uh, having won, by the way, elections in which nobody voted, uh, a lot of people are going to vote in this election. A lot of people are going to vote in this democratic primary. Uh, this will be a very hotly contested and very interesting primary. And, uh, and as I say, I think, you know, uh, I don't, we'll see if he makes it to the finish line. We'll see if he even does. Primary? He might drop out he might drop out before 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 trouble you know besets him. Um, you know he's out of office uh as of January, so you know maybe maybe this is a way of him signaling to people in the democratic power structure that they should get get him a job so that he'll stay out of it. That's also possible. Maybe you can get like the ambassadorship to Nicaragua. I mean, after all, Daniel Ortega is back in power, and so maybe, you know, he could he could uh, he could go down there and pick coffee beans with his favorite Sandinista. I don't know. So yes. So we're not gonna end on Taiwan. We'll talk about Taiwan tomorrow. Um it's not going anywhere. For Abe Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz, Keep the candle burning.